Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. You're listening to the Red Sea Podcast, part of the Over the Monster Network. Red Sox fans have longed to hear it. The Boston Red Sox are world champions. Hosted by Jake Devereaux. It's gone. It's in. And featuring Keaton DeRocher. It's a grand slam! I'm telling you, it's time to party! Welcome back to the Red Seat Podcast. This is your host, Jake Devereaux. And today joining me for a special Hall of Fame edition of the Red Seat Podcast is old friend Brian McPherson of the, well, formerly of the Providence Journal. Brian, how you doing, man? Yes, now of the private sector, if you will. Uh, thanks for having me, Jake. Yeah, it's great to have you back on the show. I think this is now your third appearance on the show with uh, many years in between uh, removed. So, um, you know, welcome back. Um, today we have a really excellent show for you uh, where we're going to talk about the Hall of Fame because it's really appropriate to do so uh, as baseball is sitting in the midst of a lockout and uh, Brian is a Hall of Fame voter. Um, and his ballot was quite good. We're going to talk talk about that as well. So, you know, one of our, our favorite lock lock uh, lockout pastimes these days is just to criticize people's Hall of Fame ballots. Uh, and I only saw people say nice things about yours, Brian. So that that in and of itself is a, a pretty good achievement. Yeah, you're not going to please everybody. There's certainly some people. You know, the the steroid guys are going to be polarizing and there's some people that say boy look at all those cheaters on that ballot but i think we can talk about it you sort of have to make a decision one way or another on i guess it's there's a couple of different ways that you can approach it um and i don't begrudge other people their decisions but yeah there's there's a few different aspects to it that that i'm sure we'll get into that um that most most people did seem to did seem to like the way it came out um but you're never going to please everybody yeah, impossible to do so in today's uh, day and age. Um, but let's get right into talking about the Hall of Fame in general as an idea. Um, how do you view the Hall of Fame? Do you think of it as a museum to baseball where you need to kind of show everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly? Is it a way to glorify baseball? Um, I've never even been to the Hall of Fame, so I don't have a lot of uh, stuff to go off of here, but I, I'm curious how you think of it as a voter. So there's a couple of things I think about it. It is a museum, but more than that, it's an honor. Like I do think about what are we saying when we say this guy is a hall of famer. And I think there's something that we all have in our heads when we say this guy's a hall of famer. Um, one of those things I think is that not all hall of famers are Willie Mays. And that's sometimes, that's one of the things I've evolved in my thinking, not since I became a voter, but over my time covering baseball. I was a smaller hall guy originally. 
I would have been the sort of person who would have never looked at Scott Rowland and Andrew Jones and said, that's a Hall of Famer, because I would have said, like, I never, I'm never going to tell my kids I saw Scott Rowland play. But over time, as I've thought more and more about it, I've had a couple of, a couple of things that shifted me there. One is the Hall of Fame is a lot deeper than people think it is. It's like I said, it's not just Willie Mays. It's not just Joe DiMaggio. It's like it's a lot of there is a lot of you know we, everyone knows Harold Baines just got in a few years ago, and you know you're not going to make Harold Baines your threshold because then you're making the thing really big, but. There's a lot of room for really good players that are not just guys who won six MVP awards, for example. Um, the other thing that I think about the Hall of Fame generally is that the Hall of Fame ballot, this this goes to my take on the steroid guys. Um, and like I said, a lot of people have different rules. A lot of people, for example, didn't vote for Alex Rodriguez and Manny Ramirez because they were caught cheating. They failed tests. They were suspended after the rules had been changed. Um, from my perspective, the Hall of Fame and Major League Baseball have decided in the past when they want to exclude guys. You know, they put all these players in the ballot. They have kept Pete Rose off the ballot. Right. So if Pete Rose was kept off the ballot, there's a precedent for that. They could have chosen to keep Alex Rodriguez off the ballot if they wanted to. They didn't do that. So my perspective is the Hall of Fame, you know, as a voting exercise, we were presented with this ballot. My job is to choose the players most worthy of being called Hall of Famers on the ballot that was in front of me and not to exclude them for any sort of personal reason. Yes, I know there's a character clause, but sort of based on precedent, I think we all know there's a lot of people like the the median character in the Hall of Fame is not, or the average character or the like the low bar of character is not sort of what you would think would live up to that character clause. And when you think about Hall of Famers, you think about the best players in the game's history. So that's really the way I approach it. Is the, the job is to, to pick the, the best players in this generation of players so that, you know, in, in 50 years, when people are saying, who are the Hall of Famers from that generation, you're sort of picking out the best players. Yeah, I think those are all really strong points. And in particular, one of the things that I would urge people who are curious about the Hall of Fame to do is to look up the... Uh, Jaws leaderboards on baseball reference and just simply uh, scroll down the page at how many guys do not meet the threshold who are actually in the Hall of Fame. So like you said, it's a much more inclusive group, guys that don't look like they particularly uh, statistically qualify uh, as you know one of those inner circle Hall of Famers like Willie Mays. I mean, there's a lot of guys in there who you kind of have to scratch your head when you look at uh, who is actually in the Hall of Fame and uh, read more about these guys to see what impact they had in particular. Um, but I, I think also the point about the character clause is really interesting because, you know, you can go back and look at guys like Ty Cobb and their behavior, um, Tris Speaker, who may or may not have been in the KKK. I mean, there's a lot of inner circle Hall of Famers with some pretty low bars for... Um, for the character clause. So how do you think about that? Or do you think about it at all when you're thinking about guys who you're going to put into the Hall of Fame? So to this point, I I only do a little bit. And I certainly don't in terms of steroids because, I mean, that was the era that they were played in, playing in. And there's a lot of talk. A lot of people point out Bud Selig is in the Hall of Fame. He really oversaw that era. Like that carries some weight. Like that's the sort of thing. I mean, there are a lot of ways you can do it. You know, some of these are just justifications. I remember sort of having the conversation with myself at some point. It's like, you know, what's a performance enhancer anyway? Like coffee is a performance enhancer, right? Like caffeine is a drug that makes you more alert and awake. Nobody's keeping anyone out of the game for drinking coffee. Yes, like there's a difference between coffee and anabolic steroids. And especially after 2004, that's where I certainly don't begrudge the people who who do decline to vote for Rodriguez and Ramirez, guys who, when the rules were very explicitly changed to forbid this stuff, used it anyway and got caught, if they put them in a different category than Barry Bonds, who did what he did in an era where it was tacitly approved because that's what the game needed to recover from the 94 strike, um, I can see that. But otherwise, the character clause is hard. There's, I mean... The one that's going to be really hard, by the way, not to like completely take this conversation on tangent, the one that's going to be tough for me is Carlos Beltran when he comes up mm -hmm. because he's a 
Astro stuff aside, he's a clear first ballot, easy, just waltz into a Hall of Fame guy. But that's going to be one where a lot of us are going to have to think, like, that cheating scheme was, that's not good. Like, that's that starts to get away from the spirit of the game. Like, using steroids to stay healthy and to hit the ball farther. Like, it's, I don't know. There's performance enhancers, and then there's, like, it, like, that starts to feel like a, a fuzzier area. So I think next year I'm going to have to think a lot harder about that character clause. I think it's next year that Beltron's up. Um, I'm going to have to think a lot harder about that character clause because that starts to get a little more uncomfortable than the guys who were using steroids in an era where everybody was using steroids. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, it's it's really... It's difficult to take a guy like Barry Bonds or Roger Clemens who... Um, had a Hall of Fame career before they probably did steroids. You know, if you take the first 10 years of either of those guys' careers, they're probably Hall of Famers, uh, probably sure sure thing Hall of Famers at that. And, you know, Schilling uh, kind of fits that bill as well, and I don't think he's connected to, to steroids at all. But, you know, in particular with a guy like Bonds, the skills that he had were there. Uh, the steroids just simply accentuated uh, some of the power that he had. I mean, his pitch recognition and all all that other stuff that made Barry Bonds Barry Bonds was, was not going to be changed by steroids. So, I mean, how much do you think about a guy's underlying skills in, when, you're, when you're thinking about imagining how they might have helped that player? So the one that that stands out for, I think the hardest one for that, is Sammy Sosa, who's a guy that I have not voted for. Um, This is the 10th year on the ballot, so I will not have the opportunity to vote for him, but I have intentionally, like I wouldn't, to me, he's he's not quite a Hall of Famer. And a lot of people say, like, how can you vote for Bonds and not for Sosa? Because they think they're the same player, and they're just not the same player at all. Like, they're just not, you know, you look at them, they just, people sort of think, well, if you're going to let the steroid guys in, you have to let Sammy Sosa in. Barry Bonds' on-base percentage was 100 points higher than Sammy Sosa's, his career. Like, 100 points. They were completely (laughs) different players. And that's where, you know, there's that, like, the fact that one of the reasons I don't vote for Sosa is because he had the same career on-base percentage as Michael Kadire. But the other part of that is, like, his resume, like, 600 home runs. Like, he hit 600 home runs. Like, there's, in some ways, you can't ignore that. But on the other hand, if that is the sum total of his value of as a player. And it kind of was. Like, with that on-base percentage, with, you know, he ran a little bit, but not a ton. He, like, you know, it's the right, he was a corner outfielder. Like, it was the home runs. And if the steroids help you hit the home runs, and that's all you're doing, that's a lot harder to say, like, 600 home runs is an automatic ticket into the Hall of Fame. Whereas... Barry Bonds was so much more than a guy who hit the ball really, really far. Alex Rodriguez was so much more than a guy who hit the ball really, really far. I mean, these guys, you know, Bonds had a career on base percentage of almost 450. Manny Ramirez's on base percentage career was over 400. Like, these are really good hitters that, you know, each of them have been connected with performance enhancing drugs. Each of them could hit the ball really, really far, but there was a lot more to their game than just. Like, you tack on the steroids, and then the ball carries, you know, they hit it 10 feet farther, so they get X many more home runs. There was more to their game than that. So that make, it makes it easier to check the box for them. Yeah, and, and I think you also have to take into account the guys who they were hitting these home runs off of. I mean, hitting home runs off of guys who were also presumably uh, taking steroids. I mean, Roger Clemens and Andy Pettit and other guys like him who they were competing against i mean you can't you can't take that out of the equation either but i totally agree with you uh on that point and i i have trouble excluding um guys who were generational hitters if if not even better in the case of somebody like barry bonds probably once in a lifetime hitter uh in the in the case of barry bonds but Let's get into the the Hall of Fame, the process of it. For for people out there that are a little bit unfamiliar with how a writer ends up uh, with a Hall of Fame vote, what's that process like? How did how did you end up with a Hall of Fame vote? So it's it's pretty straightforward, which is nice. It's ten years with a Baseball Writers of Association of America card, um, which basically means 
10 years covering baseball on a regular basis um, to get a baseball writers of, of association association of America card. Usually you're with a newspaper or similar outlet. Um, obviously that's kind of changing. It changed. It changed. It changed recently. Like it's, it's a little backward that, you know, some of my colleagues who I respect greatly, like Rob Bradford and Alex Spear, who were working for WEI when I started the Providence journal, they got their BBWA cards after I did because they hadn't been allowed in as, as writers for a radio station website mm. um, when clearly they were doing the same work that we were doing. So they got they got their cards after me. I think they have their first votes this year, um, both of them. But as a writer for the Providence Journal, I didn't. I actually freelanced. I was a writer for a different newspaper covering the Red Sox for a full year before I got my writer's card because I was technically a freelancer. Um, and then I stopped a couple of a few years ago, just just in time i stayed around just in time to to get my my 10 years with a card which was which was really nice to kind of get this get to do this because that was always a dream of mine to get to go for the hall of fame um and so even though i no longer write for the providence journal and no longer cover baseball i get a vote they changed the rules recently which is something i think is very fair um basically i get a vote for a total of 10 years after i gave up my last card so i probably have eight votes left you don't okay. get a vote in perpetuity the way you used to, which I think, I you know, I wish I had a vote in perpetuity and I would take it very seriously if I did. But I think it's eminently fair to say, you know, I'm going to vote for guys that I covered. Um, some of these guys, certainly Barry Bonds, I didn't cover. Um, he was before my time. But the guys, especially the guys that are coming up, guys like, you know, Adrian Beltre will be on pretty soon. Like, you know, I would be thrilled to vote for Adrian Beltre. Like, that's somebody that I covered um that so i have it i have it for 10 years after i gave up my card which is a couple of years ago um and then i will no longer be a voter but voters like you know someone like robin alex who are still covering major league baseball they will continue to have a vote for as long as they're covering baseball and then for 10 years thereafter okay yeah that's a really interesting process i wasn't quite sure how that worked with uh when when the vote got taken away from you so that is really interesting that that has evolved um it was it intentional that you stuck around for the 10 years in order to 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 get the vote was that was that something you were thinking about when you were thinking about transitioning out of the game it was it was there in the back of my mind and actually the last year that i had a card was the year after i had left but i was still freelancing for mlb.com and the mm. Providence journal so i was still able to get a card based on the fact that you know the the Boston chapter, you know, took me very seriously as a as a journalist, and I wasn't doing it full time anymore. But I was doing it on a, enough that I could that I could get that the card for the tenth year. Um, it mattered, but there were a lot of reasons. There were several reasons why I transitioned out of covering baseball. Most of them lifestyle related. It's just very difficult with a young family to be covering games every single night and then traveling and spending a lot of time in February at spring training and all those things that go with covering the game. So it was, it was time for me to, to do something else that was a little more nine to five. Um, but I certainly, it would have been, I would have been very sad if I had walked away, you know, a year short of the hall of fame boat. So I'm, I feel very fortunate that I get to, that I get to do something that I dreamed about as a kid. Yeah. And 10 years is not in uh, insubstantial amount of time to spend doing one thing. So you certainly made your mark as a as a writer, that's for sure. I, I think we have been burying the lead, though, here with uh, what your Hall of Fame ballot actually is. Um, from from listening to our discussion thus far, uh, people have already you know figured out at least some of the guys that you voted for. But uh, your ballot in total was uh, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Andrew Jones, David Ortiz, uh, Manny Ramirez, Alex Rodriguez, Scott Rowland, Kurt Schilling. Gary Sheffield, and Billy Wagner. A very good ballot, uh, in my opinion, but in particular, there were some guys on there that are, are controversial. So Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens, as well as Manny Ramirez and Alex Rodriguez, uh, you know, we, we've touched on why those guys might be controversial. You could maybe throw Gary Sheffield into that category. Um, David Ortiz's candidacy has been one that has been a little bit polarizing, um, especially for people who I follow on Twitter who cover baseball, but not necessarily 
the Red Sox, you know, guys who write about other teams, um, maybe think that he is a borderline case or, you know, in some cases not even deserving of the Hall of Fame. So let's talk about his candidacy a little bit. What made David Ortiz such a sure thing Hall of Famer for you? And was that an easy choice? I mean, you use the word borderline. It's if there were multiple circles in the Hall of Fame, like, you know, I talked about how, you know, not every Hall of Famer is Willie Mays. David Ortiz is not in the Willie Mays section. He's not in the Barry Bonds section. Like, Barry Bonds has three times as many career wars, David Ortiz. So I don't know that I would say David, like, he, from what it looks like at this point, um, when we're recording, you know, we're all paying attention to Ryan Thibodeau's um, Hall of Fame tracker, and it seems like David Ortiz has a pretty decent shot of getting in on his first ballot, and if he doesn't, I'm sure he'll get in on his second, um, which is a little bit, it's honestly a little bit surprising to me, but I think the big precedent is the designated, the big, the big reason is designated hitter is a position. It's been a position for 50 years, and there are two guys who are far and away the best designated hitters that have ever been in those 50 years. You know, this is not a 15-year sample size anymore. This is 50 years of there being a DH. And Edgar Martinez is a Hall of Famer. And David Ortiz is the other best designated hitter of all time. And therefore, he's in two as the other best. You know, we'll talk about, maybe we'll talk about closers later. It's the same, like, these are positions that didn't exist in the 1930s, but they're positions now, and they've been positions for a long time. So there's that, that he's clearly... You know, you can argue him or Edgar, but like they're the two best DHs of all time. And then that postseason resume, you know, when you have, it's funny, you know, people talk about the concept of clutch, and in some ways, you could argue David Ortiz, like the clutch thing is a little overrated because, like, he was just really good. Like his postseason numbers are basically the same as his regular season numbers because he's really good. Um, but given the caliber of pitching you often see, and given the moments he had in the playoffs. Um, you know that clutch factor that moments factor like you that's that little magic that if there was any doubt to begin with that certainly puts him over the top yeah and we do have a way to measure that too i mean it's not perfect but we have uh win probability added and if you look at ortiz's career uh he's number one all time for win probability added at 3.2 um and his 2004 season uh, is the highest single-season WPA of all time at 1.9. Um, and, and to put in perspective as well, the postseason runs that you were talking about, 2004, 2007, uh, 2013, his WRC pluses in those particular runs were 222, 203, and 214, um, which is basically comparable to Barry Bonds' best full seasons, except... You know, in the postseason, uh, when it matters, and you know, it's it's really hard to ignore things like, you know, getting on base nineteen times uh, in one uh, postseason series, and it's it's crazy some of the stuff that he's done. I mean, he hit four fifty five in the World Series in his career, like that's that's nutty. Yeah, totally. Um, and, and I've argued for David Ortiz as being the most important player in Red Sox history. Um, and I know some people will quibble with that, but I think that you could argue that I could, I would, I don't know that I'm going to fully endorse it without thinking about it, but I will, I will absolutely give it very serious thought. Yes. Yeah. And, and my argument here is that his arrival with the club in 2003 essentially was a turning point in the franchise's history. Um, when he gets here, he changes the culture of the team. They obviously win the World Series for the first time in 86 years in 2004. You know, as we just talked about, it was in no small part to his clutch heroics uh, during that postseason. And then if you look at what he's accomplished over the course of his career, it really is remarkable. He's only one of four players ever along with Hank Aaron, Barry Bonds, and Albert Pujols, to have over 500 home runs and 600 doubles in his career. That's crazy. That's crazy company to be in as a hitter. Yeah. that's. I mean, that's the thing. Is like, I mean, I don't think, at this point, I don't think the DH thing is holding him back because I think the Edgar Martinez precedent is there. I think the only thing that is 
there are people that are holding the 2003 against test reported test against him but that's where if i even if i were a like keep barry bonds out or keep manny ramirez out like that's it's so flimsy and especially given that he played basically his entire career in the testing era you know it's one thing you know like a guy like mike piazza is in and there's a lot of suspicion around a guy like mike piazza but a lot of his career was not played in the testing era so it's just gonna have to be innuendo and we're really not gonna know Ortiz played his entire career in the testing era, and there's one anonymous, weird, Rob Manfred said it might not even be right, like, reported positive from 2003, at which point then after that he became the most dominant, one of the most dominant hitters in the game for 10 plus years. Like, that's not enough to keep, it's, it's enough, it's been enough to keep some people from voting for him, but it, I don't know, that's pretty flimsy for me. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I, I don't understand why people cling to that. His best seasons came after that. You look at his remarkable 2007 campaign, his numbers were just otherworldly that year. He broke Jimmy Fox's uh, single-season home run record after that. Um, and then if you look at his final season in 2016 when he was a 40-year-old, he led the league in slugging percentage doubles, RBIs, and OPS. I mean, you can't tell me this guy wasn't getting tested frequently throughout that entire stretch of time. Absolutely. I think there were times he was sort of felt aggrieved that he was getting extra testing because people were sort of skeptical that he was still doing what he was doing. He was just, he was, he was a great, great player. Um, and that's one where the intangibles help him as well. And I think it makes sense to, like, that's where, you know, if, if you're going to need a tiebreaker, and I don't think you even do with him, but then you sort of say, right, when you're talking about the history of baseball in the 2000s and the 2010s, like, given the dominance of that Red Sox run, like, he is the central character in it. If we were making a Mount Rushmore of Red Sox players, oh no, I, I don't think I could think about a Mount Rushmore without David Ortiz. I mean, I, I would put Ted Williams. I'd throw on Yastrzemski, um, Pedro Martinez, yeah, and then I think I it's David say. Ortiz. Yeah, I was going to say Williams, Yaz, Pedro, and Ortiz. I agree. That's, yeah. that's the four I would pick. Not to, like, again, we'll go off on a tangent on this, but I think that's the four. Given, given the winning that's happened this century, I think it's completely fair to weight it towards this group. And it's like... You know, no offense to Bobby Doerr, but if he was like, you know, the third or fourth best player in terms of numbers retired for the first 80 years of the franchise, like there's not a lot going on in the first 80 years of the franchise. It's, yeah, Pedro was transformative in his own way. You know, he he was part of what got Manny Ramirez over. He was the most, you know, the most dominant player maybe on the side of Ted Williams, maybe even including Ted Williams that the franchise has ever had. But you're right, Ortiz, it is not a coincidence that they went from no rings in 100 years to four rings in 15 years when David Ortiz showed up. Yeah, I, I think that's totally spot on. And one of the things that kind of rubs me the wrong way when I see people uh, talking like he doesn't deserve to be in the Hall of Fame, uh, is when I see that people sometimes mention um, that his personality, his demeanor, his um, the way that he is with the media, he's such an affable guy, um, that that has really buoyed his candidacy. And I think that you know when you're looking at somebody who is a three-time World Series champ, 10-time All-Star, seven Silver Sluggers, you know, two World Series MVPs, I think that's unfair to him as a player. Yeah, and he wasn't, like, the most cheerful guy all the time. Like, he was often, like, I really enjoyed covering him. But when things weren't going well for him, like, he was not the most cheerful guy either. I don't know. I don't, I think in this day and age, I think that was a factor. I think that's a, that's a lingering fallacy that was probably the case back in the, like, 60s when... The only way anybody got to know players was through the media. And so that was the like that was the exposure they got. I don't know. I don't think writers these days I think writers these days are like in some ways 
maybe this is saying this backward, but I think writers these days are so jaded that they don't expect guys to be particularly nice most of the time. And sure, it's good when they are, but I don't think anybody's casting. I would be surprised if there's that many people casting Hall of Fame ballots right now based on who was a nice guy and who wasn't. You know, we have too much information available now. Before, it was just like batting average home runs and RBIs and was he nice to the media. And we've got just so much more available to us now that we can use that that just shouldn't matter. Do you think that the increased sort of um, wealth gap, I guess maybe you could say, or the way that you know some of these star players live their lives versus the way that people who write about them live their lives is as that has gotten more disparate over the years um you know you could you could conceivably and we have heard stories about old time baseball greats you know being at a bar at the same time as as the writers or hanging out at the same bar as the writers after after work but now we have these superstar multi-million dollar you know hundred million dollar plus uh players you know and then we have guys who are writers like yourself i mean the you're not living similar lives to a lot of these guys do you think that has contributed to that jadedness that that writers feel or at least the reality of like the separation yeah actually i hadn't thought about that but i think that's a reasonable point is like i mean right if there were players there were players, it seems like, who got into the Hall of Fame in the past because they were writers' drinking buddies. Yeah. And that's just not a thing. I think that's totally fair. Yeah. That, yeah. As, like, David Ortiz was a good quote, and when things were going well, like, I remember late in the 2013 season, one of my favorite moments ever covering the team was this moment when, when Ortiz explained to us what chillaxing meant in his, like, <laughs> thick Dominican accent. And he's like, it's chill and relax push together it was just like <laughs> like it was just it was hysterical he was like there was a lot of and there's a lot of stuff that like you know sort of off color as well but like he was a lot of fun to cover but right i was not david ortiz's drinking buddy like we talked to him in the clubhouse before some games and after games he did well in and did you know or did not well in and you remember those like 2009 2010 when he had a slow start like you know, we talked to him then too but right none of us were david ortiz's drinking buddy there's and you're right a lot of that is lifestyle and wealth related like david ortiz has an entourage he does not hang with the writers whereas like you know lloyd wayner or whoever you know probably hung with the writers and whitey ford you know might have hung with the writers on the road in a way that would have you know, not the Whitey Ford would have needed it, but some of these guys that are more borderline cases that would have buoyed their candidacy because they were buddies. Sure. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. That's I, I like to think of David Ortiz explaining chillaxing to to a bunch of writers. That's that's hilarious. Um, it was it was when he was basically saying he wanted he wanted them to go ahead and clinch the division that year, so everyone should, could chillax, and then he assumed that they <laughs> could not understand what he meant by chillax. That's amazing. That is that is really great. Um, so, you know, looking at David Ortiz as as a DH here, and you've talked about how Edgar Martinez got into the hall, and that kind of set the precedent. Uh, you covered the game during the time of of both of these guys to some extent. I mean, less so Edgar, but um, how do you compare the two and their resumes and in their candidacy? I mean, if you had to choose between one. Would you do you think it's a clear cut case that Ortiz is the best DH of all time, or or do you still think uh, Edgar has a pretty good case? Man, I haven't thought about that, and I'll be honest, Edgar is one of my all time favorite players. When I was in, so my dad was in the military when I was growing up, and we lived. He was stationed um, south of Seattle when I was in second through fifth grade. So that like golden era for. You know, I was, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12, and we went to tons of Mariners games. This is the early 90s, right before the Mariners got good. Um, like, we went to a ton of games in 92, which is the year they were so bad they got to draft Alex Rodriguez the next year. Um, but that was the year that Edgar Martinez won the batting title, hit 46 doubles. Like, I loved Edgar Martinez. So that's a tough one for me. I think, I don't know. I mean, Ortiz, I think... They're different hitters. Like, certainly, Ortiz is more of a slugger. You know, Edgar only hit more than 30 homers one time. 
he's that just classic like but his on base percentages are ridiculous in 95 you know his his like Quinn's essential year he had 50 doubles and his OBP was 480 like that's that's just ridiculous value so in terms of I don't know they're different but I don't know that I could pick between them but I think it's it's pretty clear that That the Hall of Fame cannot have one and not the other. And that, like I said, because the DH is a position, like both of them clearly should be in. Yeah. I'm I'm on board with that too. Um, I think it's a little bit more clear cut just because of the opportunities that David Ortiz got to play in the postseason. And I know that it's it's a little bit unfair to hold that against Edgar because he was clearly not the reason why. Uh, he was not playing in the postseason. His team just wasn't good enough to, uh, you know, as many times as David Ortiz's team was. But, um, you know, I think those accolades kind of just push David Ortiz's case into a different stratosphere for me. And I think it's one of the reasons why we're talking about him as potentially getting in on the first ballot. Yeah, and it was sad for me to see Edgar take so long to get in. I'm glad. I'm glad it finally happened. I would be interested. I wonder if the Ortiz thing would be different, honestly, if Edgar had not quite made it. If people would use that to say, "Well, Ortiz shouldn't quite make it either." But yeah, the fact that Edgar got in means Ortiz should not. I don't know. It's re- like reading other people's explanations. It really the, nobody's excluding him on the DH thing. It's really just the 2003 thing, which I said is you know flimsy, but people are people are going to make up their own minds. So not to go off on a tangent here, Brian, but, um, you know, it, it excited me to, to hear that you were in Seattle in the nineties. So do you have a favorite grunge band? I, I was way too young for grunge bands and my parents only listened to oldies music to the (laughs) embarrassing point that I like, I remember when I moved to New England in fifth grade, we met some people, some kids next door, and they were like, do you like Hootie and the Blowfish? And I was like, I don't know who they are. We just listen to the Beach Boys. <laughs> um, no, I just, we listened to the oldies radio station. We just, we went, the, the best part about living out there, though, was in, you know, stark contrast to, this is the downside of the Red Sox being as good as they are and Fenway being small. It's like, you can't just up and go to Fenway Park. Mm-hmm. A, it's super expensive, and B, it's sold out all the time. Like right. my dad would just come home from work sometimes and be like, "Hey, you like so and so's pitching? You want like Randy Johnson's pitching tonight? You want to go? You know, because the tickets were like twenty bucks each. And when the Red Sox were in town, I mean, my dad was from my parents were from Massachusetts, so we were, you know, kind of New England transplants out there. Mm-hmm. And so, like for example, you know, we would my you know when the Red Sox were in town, my dad would be like, "Hey, Roger Clemens is pitching. You want to go?" Um, and we saw, for example, Chris Bozio's no-hitter against the Mariners in 93 because we were just, you know, we would always go when the Red Sox came. But Nice. Yeah, no grudge band. No grunge band, but we were, like, yeah, big in. And, like, we moved away in 95, so I was back in New England when that whole refuse-to-lose Mariners season happened. They finally got good, but we got to see plenty of those. It was such a weird team because it was, like, three of the best players in the history of the game. And then just so much garbage after that. <laughs> yeah. The ultimate Randy Johnson, stars and scrubs. Yeah. Randy Johnson, Ken Griffey Jr. Edgar Martinez, Alex Rodriguez comes up and then just, just nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a very strange team to look back on. You're, you're absolutely right about that. Um, let's move over to Kurt Schilling's candidacy here. Uh, you voted for him. Uh, if I had a vote, I would vote for him. I think he has a very clear-cut Hall of Fame case uh, from a numbers standpoint. Um, if you look at Jaws, I mean, anyone who he's remotely comparable to uh, is in the Hall of Fame. He sits right between uh, Mike Mussina and Fergie Jenkins in terms of you know where his numbers would put him in that regard. Uh, the strikeouts are, are remarkable, the, the clutch performances um this one to me feels like it is entirely about the character clause for him how are you viewing his candidacy and you know how do you assess that yeah so here's the thing that i haven't heard people talking about yet 
when I see him dropped, like again, you know, I'm using the Hall of Fame tracker that Ryan Thibodeau's doing. Um, I see him dropped a lot. Everybody's seeing him dropped a lot. He's getting dropped a lot for me on 10, 10 vote ballots, if that makes sense. There's a lot of people, like, yes, he's, he's getting dropped a lot. He's not going to make the Hall of Fame. The politics is certainly, the personality is part of that, and I'm not going to deny that. Um, I'm with you. He's a clear cut. It's really interesting looking at some of these. Like this, this is the fun thing about Hall of Fame season is, like, you know, at some point you draw the line. Like, when they were playing, I don't know that I, you know, you think about guys like Kurt Schilling and Mike Mussina and Andy Pettit and Tim Hudson. Like, they were all real good. None of them, you know, Randy Johnson won, you know, all of his Cy Young Awards. He was clearly, like, transcendent even when he was playing. The rest of them, you know, like, Roy Halle is another one. Like, all these guys that were like, they were all really good. It was never really clear when they were playing who was going to be a Hall of Famer and who wasn't. Um, Schilling, but, like, but when you go back and look at it, you're like, oh, man, like, especially that strikeout-to-walk ratio, the fact that he just did not walk anybody, like, Schilling really was a cut above that group. Yeah. Like, he is really noticeably better than that Pettit-Tim Hudson group, um, which is why I voted for him and not those other two. But the thing that's interesting about his candidacy this year, what it seems like, there's a bunch of people who voted for 10 last year and then added David Ortiz and needed to drop somebody. And so what they've chosen to do is drop Kurt Schilling, who asked to be dropped, <laughs> which is not unfair. Right. Um, and that's the that's the problem with the 10-vote maximum is, you know, if I, if I like, the, the next guy on my ballot was Todd Helton. And I, I said I wouldn't, have, even if I could have voted for more than 10, I wouldn't have voted for Todd Helton. The more I think about it, I'm probably coming around on Todd Helton and probably... I'm not promising anything, but I'm like I'm starting to lean Todd Helton next time next year. You know, and it, it has helped that my ballot has been full before I've gotten to Todd Helton anyway. My ballot will not be full before I get to Todd Helton next year. But like if it was, if I was a Todd Helton guy, then I would have had to make a decision like do I drop somebody else to make room for David Ortiz in his first year or and Alex Rodriguez for that matter. You know, there's two strong first year candidates. Or do I drop like the worst guy in my ballot, you know, the borderline guy in my ballot, do I drop Todd Helton? Do I drop Andrew Jones? Do I drop some of these guys? Um, and I don't, I don't begrudge the people who say, you know what, Kurt Schilling said he didn't want to be voted for. So if I'm going to put Alex Rodriguez and David Ortiz in my ballot, I'll just drop Schilling because he, like he, he said he didn't want to be voted for him, so I won't. So I think that's what's happening a lot with him. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's unfortunate. He can't get out of his own way with with some of the stuff that he does and some of the things that he says. Um, it's hard for me too, because, you know, in my real life job, I'm a history teacher. And, you know, as a historian, you look back on people in history and they're extremely complicated. You know, people are not just one thing. Kurt Schilling isn't just the sum uh, of his bad Twitter rants. You know, he, he did a, a lot of, really high quality charity work with his wife over the years as well. So it's not like he's just been this horrendous person uh, for his entire time. So for me, it's it's hard for me to see his whole body of work and his whole career and, and everything that he has been over the years um, being kind of distilled down into his worst moments on Twitter. And, and I'm not defending the guy at all. My politics and his probably couldn't be more different, um, but it is just hard to see that it, it – like you were going going back to what you said at the beginning. This is a binary choice, and I feel like we're taking human beings that live in the gray area and distilling them down to either you know yes or no, and that's, that's very difficult to do. Yeah, I mean – and honestly, I think part of this is that people don't understand how good he was. Like, I think in some ways, when people, if the politics factor in, they're basically saying he's a borderline case and the politics bump him out. Because, mm -hmm. like, you know, Barry Bonds was not a nice guy. Like, there was not, Barry Bonds doesn't pass, steroids aside, Barry Bonds is not, like, a great example of the character clause, for example. But 
he was so transcendently good that nobody cares. It, like the only thing that's keeping him out is a steroids thing. Just like a lot of these guys, you know, there are a lot of baseball players that you know the competitiveness, all that. You know, that's sometimes it takes kind of being a jerk to be that good at something, especially right. baseball. Um, but that's where the thing that's been funny for me over the over the years with Schilling is I do think people don't appreciate. Like he's not a borderline candidate for whom personality could be a tiebreaker. You know, when we talked about David Ortiz and personality potentially being a like a tiebreaker in his favor, like David Ortiz is a much more borderline Hall of Famer than Kurt Schilling. Kurt Schilling, you know, you mentioned Jaws and looking by Jaws, he's the twenty first best starting pitcher of all time. Like that's crazy. Like that's he was really, really good. This is not like just slightly better than Andy Pettit. Like he was really, really good. You know, he's not in that Roger Clemens tier or the Randy Johnson tier, but he's in the tier immediately behind that group. And that to me is a pretty clear, pretty clear Hall of Famer. Um, yeah, I think I think there's there's just a lack of appreciation of just how good he was. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, and he was posting these gaudy strikeout numbers in a time where, you know, strikeouts weren't quite as easy to come by as they are these days. And we look, we look at that list, and you know, if you look at starter Jaws, uh, he's above guys like Justin Verlander and Clayton Kershaw and Max Scherzer, all guys who I think we think of today as as slam dunk Hall of Fame cases. And I agree that they are, but um, yeah, he's certainly in that category, if not even above some of those guys. So it's really interesting to see how that is going to play out. Uh, I don't expect him to get in, um, but, you know, maybe someday. Um, An interesting case, though, that you had brought up is uh, the candidacy of Jonathan Papelbon, which hasn't really been seriously talked about, um, but is a much more interesting case when you compare him to one of the guys that you did vote for in Billy Wagner. So can you talk a little bit about what you noticed when you were looking into his Hall of Fame case? Yeah, relief pitchers are tough. Like we talked a lot about designated hitter, but DH is, I don't know, DH is for me. You get to play in every single game. You play a full half of the game. Yes, you're not playing defense, but also there are a lot of, part of it is like there's a lot of crappy defenders that people just shoehorn in positions and nobody cares if they hit, you know, if they go 30 and 100, you can be as bad at first base as you want. Yes, it kind of prolongs your career. Anyway, there's certainly, there are a lot fewer relief pitchers um, in the majors. And then, but like DH, reliever, you know, was not a position in the 50s. It's a position now. It's very much a position now. Now, on the other hand, DH is also, you know, you can be a lousy fielder slash guy who tore your ACLs all the time, like Edgar Martinez. Um, but there's no, like, it's not easier to hit. It's a, okay. It's a tiny bit easier to hit because you don't have that wear and tear. It's a little easier to hit as a DH. Clearly, over time, it is easier to be a relief pitcher than it is to be a starter. Like, you know, Papelbon himself is an example of a guy who was like, came up as a starter, kind of was an okay starter, and then was a dominant reliever. Like, these guys that we're talking about as starters <clears throat> would probably all be unreal relievers if they had been relievers and only had to pitch one inning, you know, 60 times in 60 games instead of seven innings in 30 games. So the bar for relief pitcher has to be awfully high. Um, that said... You know, so yes, I voted for Wagner, and but that said, like it was really interesting to look into Papelbon's candidacy in his first year and only year on the ballot. Um, and he's not going to get in. He's not going to get close. He's not going to get five percent, which is kind of too bad because, like, he's closer than I thought. Like, I didn't, I didn't really expect him to have much of a case. I was like, hey, he was really good for a few years as a closer, but like, <clears throat> you know, he's not like, <clears throat> excuse me, like an all-time great. But he's he's closer to Wagner than I sort of expected. Yeah, I mean his his uh his best numbers. I mean, looking at his best season, in my opinion, which was two thousand six, 
68 and a third innings, 75 strikeouts, four wins, 35 saves, ERA of 0.92 and a whip of 0.78. That's remarkable. And and over the course of his career with the Red Sox, he saved 219 games, had 509 strikeouts, didn't walk anybody. I mean, he was he was nails. He had some of the best stuff out of the bullpen that we've ever seen uh, on the Red Sox. And I think really, if if you're thinking about who closes out games on your Red Sox all-time team, it's a discussion of either him or 2013 Koji. Those are the two guys that I would personally think about for closing games for me. And, And Koji edges him out, but barely for me. Yeah, I think the challenge is just like this is where it comes back to sort of innings and impact and yes, it's a rel- it's like yes, it's a position now closer but you know, these guys are pitching so few innings compared to other Hall of Fame pitchers and yes, most of them are starters and you know, some guys pitched back in the era where you know, basically either you pitched 5000 innings or you tore your ACL when you were 16 years old and never pitched again because you'd been asked to pitch double headers on the same day. Um, but it's hard. Like the, the big deciding factor for me is you know, Trevor, Trevor Hoffman pitched a thousand innings. Mariano Rivera pitched 1200 innings plus his ridiculous um, postseason track record. Billy Wagner's at 900 innings. The big challenge with guys like Papelbon and, and Joe Nathan, who I think is also not quite there is that, I mean, for Papelbon, he's a, He's 200 innings fewer than Billy Wagner. He's at 725 career innings. That would be the lowest total of any pitcher in the Hall of Fame. That starts to get real low in terms of career innings. Um, Nathan's over 900, like Wagner, but several of those were the bad starting pitching years that pull his numbers up so that they're not, you know, his ERA plus is 30 points lower than, 35 points lower than Billy Wagner's. The interesting one for me coming through the ranks as we think about this in the future, is someone like Craig Kimbrell, because mm. he's like he's now the you know one of those guys that's like you know when you think of dominant closers of this era, you know he's the maybe the most dominant one at this point. Kenley Jansen maybe too. They're both in like Papelbon territory in terms of seven hundred innings, and maybe we'll have to rethink it at this point. Maybe there's going to be guys where seven hundred eight innings, seven hundred eight hundred innings is what you expect out of a closer, and that's the career, and then you you know pick the best ones. But for now, you know when Trevor Hoffman could pitch 1,000 innings, Billy Wagner could pitch 900, like Papelbon's 725 just didn't, like it's just not quite enough to, to be Hall of Famer for me. You know, if I'm thinking about it anecdotally, though, without even looking at the numbers, if I had to say who got my pulse up more at the end of games, uh, it would certainly be Craig Kimbrell. Uh, over or for Papelbon. I certainly felt a whole lot safer uh, with Pap in the game than I ever did with Craig Kimbrell. And I recognize that Kimbrell's numbers in his best seasons are probably superior to that of Jonathan Papelbon. But man, uh, he did not make me feel good at the end of games a lot of the time. Yeah, but he had those seasons. Some of those seasons in Atlanta were just insane. Yeah, like 2012. I mean, it's bananas some of the stuff that he's done but yeah i agree i agree with you um it is interesting that the hall is going to you know continue to evolve as the game continues to change especially with the workloads for pitchers we're probably pretty close to to done with 300 game winners and you know 160 innings pitch is becoming the new 200 innings pitch so it's uh it's all evolving and it's going to it's not going to be easy uh, for, for Hall of Fame voters in, in the future. So while it is a great honor, I, uh, I don't always envy the choices that you guys have to make. Yeah, and I think that's where you just have to come back to like comparing these guys against their peers. And that's where you know, David Ortiz is one of the best among his peers. Um, you know, or like you know, a, a transcendent hitter among his peers. And that's where you sort of look at a guy like Scott Rowland. And you know, he doesn't feel like when people are like the Hall of Fame is for people that I, you know, told gonna tell my kids I watch, and, you know, they should be like Willie Mays and Babe Ruth. Well, like Scott Scott Rowland is not Willie Mays and Babe Ruth, but like, there's a pretty good argument. He's a he and Adrian Beltre are the two best third basemen of his generation, and that like 
that that's a hall of famer for me that this is you know you compare you look around at at that generation is who are the best guys for a long period of time at each position and those are the guys that you sort of want to be able to say like that's a hall of famer yeah i would agree with that uh, I, I would support Roland's Hall of Fame case as well. Um, Brian, before we get you out of here, um, you know, you've been off the beat for a little bit of time. Uh, I think it's been since 2017 that we've had you on the podcast. So uh, reflecting back on your, your 10 years plus covering baseball, uh, what do you miss, if anything? I mean, I miss covering it. I miss good games. I don't miss bad games. <laughs> there have been plenty of, like, I remember especially early on when I left, there would be those, like, nightmare-long Red Sox games with a rain delay or two, and you know, I'm seeing the writers are getting done at the press conference at 2 in the morning. I don't miss that at all, but I miss, like, you know, I miss the playoff runs. I miss the games that matter. I miss, I guess I miss getting to go in and ask the questions, the, like, the questions that help you understand why things happened. That was my favorite part was... And that was, you know, I enjoyed that on Twitter because there were a lot of smart people that would ask questions of me that I didn't know the answer to. And I got to be the one to be like, hey, let me go ask that of that player and see, you know, what's that pitch he just threw? Or like, why did he, you know, why did they go about it this way? Ask the manager, like, you know, a lot of people like to ask the, like, what are you doing? You know, John Farrell thing. But, you know, it's to be able to say, hey, like, that was an interesting choice. Like, why, why go with this pitch hitter versus that one? Like, to be able to ask that question and then sort of, sift through it and understand the reasoning and learn about the game from people who have been doing it for a long time but also are imperfect um, that kind of exercise that kind of analysis I always really enjoyed um, so I miss that part of it you know the work I do now in the corporate world the subject matter is not as exciting as playoff races and or even like compensatory draft picks which I always enjoyed sort of you know, digging into that off-season stuff too. So I miss that, but I don't miss the the games that go ridiculously long. I don't miss the free agent signings in the off-season that happen when I'm at the playground with my daughter and I have to run inside and jump on a conference call. Um, that that part of it is, is why I ended up walking away, but I certainly enjoyed it a lot while I was doing it. Well, we certainly enjoyed your coverage and in, in your time on the podcast with uh, Tim Britton as well. So uh, if you're unfamiliar with Brian McPherson's work, please go on, follow him on Twitter. He's at Brian MacP. Um, great stuff there. One of the good Hall of Fame voters and, uh, you know, Hall of Fame podcaster to me. So, um, Brian, thank you so much for coming on and joining me today and enlightening me about the Hall of Fame. And this was a really fun discussion. I had a lot of fun. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Jake. All right.